Welcome to The Standard. The Standard is on a mission to champion the pursuit of excellence and fight against the celebration of mediocrity. For those who refuse to lower their standards, for those who can't raise their own, this is The Standard. For fitness, for family, for life. Well, Rhonda, it's been probably a few years since you've come on the podcast. So what's, uh, what are you doing? What's different? What kind of work are you doing these days? I don't know if the last time we talked, you knew that uh, I folded Responder Strong into the All Clear Foundation. You know, Responder Strong's mission has been to improve mental health supports for emergency responders and their families. It now serves as our mental health initiative in All Clear, who has the broader mission of improving overall well-being and longevity of emergency responders. And when we use that umbrella term now, we are inclusive of frontline healthcare workers and their families. Um, I'm the executive director for All Clear Foundation, and I work uh, for Global Medical Response, which is the largest EMS company in the U.S., 38,000 air ground medical personnel and uh, rural metro fire, building out their health, wellness, and resilience program. So with COVID and everything that's happened in the aftermath, it's been a wild time to be involved in particularly mental health. And of course, triage style, we still prioritize mental health, but recognize it's it's part of the overall continuum for well-being. So it's been busy. It's been good. Uh, I can only imagine with going through the pandemic what, what it might have been like for you. But like what trends are you seeing maybe within the pandemic, but now that it's over getting back, are you seeing some trends increasing, you know, across the mental health spectrum? Uh, are some things getting better? Some things getting worse? Absolutely. I think that one of the silver linings, so to speak, that came out of the whole pandemic is that it has done so much more to destigmatize mental and emotional health challenges and to normalize that experience, the experience that the human behind the badge, the uniform and the scrubs is encountering in these crazy situations. We've always known that stress reactions. And we, as you know, Tom, borrow heavily from the stress injury formation model with the military, that stress reactions are a normal physiologic response to being in some pretty abnormal experiences. And that part of the reason we've experienced not only the suicidality we have among responders in the past or historically, but the rates of depression, anxiety, substance misuse is a failed attempt to cope with trauma. All of this has just been an overwhelm of our coping mechanisms in most cases. What I think happened with COVID and what we're seeing is that things have finally gotten so crazy and so overwhelming. More responders are recognizing this is an injury. It's not mental illness, which is the only framework we had to think of it in the past. And the cool thing about injuries is we're really good at knowing how to prevent them once we understand why they're happening. So I think it's done a lot to normalize destigmatize it. And I've seen that a lot of responders now are not only reaching out for help openly, but they're demanding for help. They're demanding help from their organizations. They're recognizing the occupation played into this. And now we find ourselves in the unique situation or for the first time that demand for culturally competent and trauma-informed mental health supports is outpacing and exceeding what we have out there. So what makes a culturally competent mental health professionals, like when we're talking with first responder or frontline healthcare worker community, do you think it's important that somebody that is, say, giving therapy or giving counseling or being just that uh, peer support has that experience in the field? Is that that one of those almost requirements? Just because, I mean, looking at it from my perspective, I would want to talk to somebody that at least knows what I'm going through and knows maybe what what our normal coping mechanisms are, like the type of humor we have, the type of uh, dialogue we have in the stations, um, the things we see and, and what we think of those things we see, you know, rather than just talking to somebody who maybe went to four years of school and it's like, okay, they've, they've read, you know, an APA edition of, of dis- disabilities and disorders and they, they know the definitions, but that's about it, you know? Exactly. And you just hit the nail on the head, that differentiator. We see better outcomes for responders and healthcare workers, just like with the military, when they're speaking to somebody who understands the client's experience. How that understanding comes about, I think there's multiple pathways. Some comes through lived experience. There are a lot of really exceptional clinicians out there who are former military responder, healthcare worker, and then went ahead to complement their lived experience with the education 
There were also a lot of clinicians out there who never really wore the uniform, wore the badge, walked the path, but they have invested a lot of time in bringing themselves up to speed. And I think it's kind of these clinicians who come with the humility and the beginner mindset. I have the clinical knowledge, but I want to understand the cultural components of this. I want to understand the hierarchy. I want to understand the culture and why, what draws responders to this work the high personal expectations they tend to have. I want to understand the sense of identity because all of us very deeply identify with what we do is who we are. And that adds a whole new facet to, to understanding what we're, we're encountering, experiencing on the job and who understand the points that you brought up that, yeah, the humor can be pretty dark and socially inappropriate, but it's there to cope and it's there for a reason. And there are so many well-intentioned clinicians who don't understand that and view it are, are tempted to view it through the lens of a character flaw or are tempted to view it as, you know, just a choice that you may not understand that this is a coping mechanism. You can dial it down, but you got to replace it with another coping mechanism. And, you know, there've been so many clinicians in the past who don't understand the exposure of the job, don't understand the personality types who are drawn to it. You know, most of us got into this because we're rescuers for one reason or another. They don't understand that a lot of military responders, healthcare workers, the helping professions oftentimes come in with higher than average adverse childhood experiences scores. So maybe they're bringing in pre-existing trauma that gets triggered in this environment. So there's a whole lot of nuances. And we've just seen too many clinicians in the past who are well-intentioned and so eager to jump for, this is just anxiety, or this is just alcoholism. And they fail to understand that, no, this is, this is somebody who is strong and who holds themselves to a high standard, trying desperately to struggle with everything that they've been experiencing and it's overwhelming their current coping mechanisms. So they're defaulting to unhealthy ones. So to your point, clinicians who understand the job, understand the exposures and understand our reactions to it and the presence of trauma are far more likely to be successful with our personnel and to develop a rapport with them. This episode is brought to you by us. More importantly, our Patreon and most importantly, our Patreon members. If you like what you're hearing, think about joining us. Head on over to the-standard.us and for as little as $3 a month, you can get extra episodes, discounts on gear, monthly conference calls. So head on over to our site at the-standard.us and remember to always like and subscribe. Back to the show. You had originally started this question and I wandered way off with how does a clinician get this cultural competence and this trauma-informed status? You know, in the past, the only nationally recognized standard was police and public safety psychologist from the American Board of Professional Psychology. Problem is, it's a super intensive program. You can only get that certification if you have a doctorate in psychology. And it's such a rigorous program that there's only about 74 of them in the country. And guess what most of them do? psych fit for duties and pre-employment screening. So not only do they not have the bandwidth, but none of us wanna go in and sit down and talk about our feelings and the things that we feel like could come back up in an investigation later on. So looking for a national standard, one of the groups we work with, the National Emergency Responder and Public Safety Center, we helped develop a 56 hour clinician certification that's unique in a couple of ways. One, it's endorsed by the American Psychological Association for 40 CEUs. And two, it caters to master's level and above clinicians. Most of the mental health professionals who see and treat our, our people, they're master's level. They might be LMFTs, they might be LPCs, social work's big in it, but they haven't had this sort of recognized support in the past. So the 40-hour didactic talks about everything, the culture, the way we take the job home with us inadvertently, the invisible uniforms our families often wear and don't realize it, um, talks about um, presumptive laws, talks about precedents legally, talks about FMLA, um, talks about ways to protect responders while they're recovering from stress injuries by a change of duty status so they can still contribute, can still have that sense of worth and identity and meaning and not feel stigmatized. Um, it also requires a 16-hour experiential component which is kind of similar to our oral boards back when we had them, uh, that it gives the agencies time to develop a relationship with the clinician, gives them a chance to vet them and give feedback. Was this clinician good? Did they establish rapport with our people? 
or was this person kind of off? We don't know why, but <laughs> we don't think this is going to work. So they have feedback. And it also gives the clinician an opportunity to really have some lived experience. Granted, it's a shift, maybe maybe two shifts, but it's something. And um, I think that's moving toward a standard like that, I think is fantastic. Is there any benefit to not having to not having that much experience? I mean, uh, being able to see our world with like a clean slate as opposed to if you have someone who's already been kind of damaged by the system, maybe that gives you uh, a skewed opinion of like what reality <laughs> might be. Yeah, maybe just a little <laughs> bit more objective. Yeah, right. Like I almost think it might benefit someone to not have 20 years of experience and then someone comes into your office and you're like, how many shifts have you had? You know, not to say that something bad didn't happen and you can't have trauma in such a short amount of time, but I almost think too much experience is a bad thing. You could, it jade you sometimes, right? Oh, yeah. So I could see, even at the peer support level, like let's just our own experience, right? I could see somebody that has a lot of experience as a vet on the job. They might hear of a situation that's going on and, and they could roll their eyes at it or oh i've been there before like you know it, it just doesn't hit them the same way so they don't go through maybe these checks and balances to see like oh well, what's really going on with this guy here you know they they revert back to maybe their experience so i don't know i, I could see some benefit in that it's almost like having enough knowledge to know to know what culture is like to be accepting of that culture but then have the objectivity to kind of take every single case for itself and, you know, really dive in. I absolutely agree with that. And I've seen a couple different clinicians over my career, done some EMDR, done some neurofeedback. And I got to tell you, hands down, the best clinician I've seen, she's PhD in psychology, never even rode on a fire engine, never rode in an ambulance. Um, Was this Karen? No, no. Um, But Karen's fantastic too. And a great example of that. Um, and, you know, being on the peer support team and Karen managing us, I couldn't see her as a, a client. It was, it would be a conflict yeah. with our relationship, but no, I do think there is a lot of value to somebody who's open to understanding our culture and our exposures. And I think to your point that oftentimes if it can be the situation for us, there's no one clinician who's going to be good for everybody. We all have our own nuances, our own lenses that sometimes if we're seeing somebody who has been on the job as long as we have, somebody who has walked in our our boots, so to speak, sometimes their approval of us might not be as validating or their explanation of what's going on as somebody who's standing outside, like to your point, Craig, with the objective lens saying, no, 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 no. what you're doing, that is not normal. Most people won't encounter this. Let me normalize your reaction and, and let me validate the experience you're having. So I think there's value in both. And just as I think that Having the clinical expertise doesn't necessarily qualify you to work well with all responders unless you go above and beyond to establish some more cultural competence. I don't think necessarily coming up through the ranks means you're going to be a good clinician. A lot of people go into the mental health field because they're trying to solve their own problems. And sometimes those can show up in their their sessions. So that we recognize that there's no one answer for everybody. And that's why we're really trying to create a broad spectrum of solutions and support so that everybody can find a portal that they can enter and find success. I've uh I've been to a lot of therapy actually, and uh, it took me like I don't know six different therapists until I found someone that I felt like was speaking my language. How would you suggest someone feels like they need to go get some help? What should they be looking for, and you know what should they kind of expect? Obviously, their departments are all going to have different protocols on how their their system works, but um, you know, broad strokes, like what are you, what are you looking for? Great question. Um, personal recommendations, a good one. Um, peer support teams are really valuable in this respect because not only have peer supporters, the ability to connect with peers because they they've had similar experiences and they understand, but peer supporters are also skilled navigators and advocates. So, so many of us will go to the mat for anybody else but we won't stand up for ourselves, especially if it's around something we're feeling uncertain about, like if we're we're experiencing mental or emotional challenges or relational challenges or anything that we might feel stigmatized about. But um, peer supporters are able not only to go ahead and advocate confidentially when necessary, but they understand how to navigate the systems. Um, Most departmental supports 
are not easy to navigate. And most responders don't even attempt to navigate them until they're in crisis and they've got the limited bandwidth and don't have the ability to deal with the complexity of screening clinicians, going through multiple appointments. They're in a state of vulnerability. So if the clinician cries at the contents of a call or makes what sounds like a disparaging comment, whether it's around humor to your point, Tom, or some, some other defense mechanism, that can totally shut a responder down and they won't go through that process to get to the sixth clinician and find that success. So I think peer support's a huge way to circumvent that challenge. Other, other ways, we've had a lot of demand. Responder Strong started building out a culturally competent list of clinicians for Colorado back in 2016. We've been working with partner agencies to expand that list nationally. I think we're up to about 1,200. So referencing something like that where, hey, other responder-specific agencies have vetted these clinicians and think that they're, they're good, they understand the culture, doesn't mean you're gonna have rapport with them, but this is a good place to start. It's way better than the list of 200 EAP clinicians that you're gonna get from, from most programs. I wanna stop you real quick, because I think that's super important. Tell me where we can find this list that you're talking about, oh. because that's like that's huge right there. I mean, it's- It'd uh, be a good starting yeah. point. Yeah, is that on your website? Yeah, it is. So we have two websites, All Clear Foundation, and then Responder Strong's our mental health initiative. Responder Strong already had the brand neck recognition in the site, so we kept it. Responderstrong.org on one of the top tabs is resources, and underneath is clinical support. And under that, you can check clinicians, um, residential treatment programs, after support, uh, support groups, and um, uh, retreats and intensives are there. And we're continually updating and adding to that list. Um, another way to access that list is we have a free digital tool for responders, healthcare workers, and their family members. It's called You Responder Strong. Do you guys remember Man Therapy? No. Oh my gosh, Google it. Man awesome therapy? program came out about 10 years ago. It was created by Grit Digital Health and Cactus in Denver. It is a totally inappropriate <laughs> humor-based program that targets working age males around suicide out, uh, suicidality awareness and prevention. Um, they decided the best way to talk about taboo topics is using humor, and we all know that. So Man Therapy is a website. It's based around a fictional psychologist, Dr. Rich Mahogany. Um, <laughs> historically funny. <laughs> all right, and, uh, so M wild Man Therapy, M-A-N Therapy? Yep. Uh dot com maybe or should i just search it uh, i'm googling it i right think now. it's Be that work if you just google man therapy it should okay. come up all one word men yeah mantherapy.org men's mental health resources man size mental health quiz all right <laughs> it is awesome um and uh tom to you'll appreciate this i tried to bring it into aurora fire <laughs> and the city shut us down because we already had enough eeoc complaints oh, it's, a, it's a how funny it is not surprised <laughs> and, uh, welcome, yeah, at all. welcome um, to man therapy it's a physical for your feelings but you get to keep your pants on oh i like where this is headed <laughs> uh, this is great so anyway <laughs> that group grid right. created this platform called you it's capital capital y capital o capital u and the story is that man therapy was so wildly uh, successful, CSU called Joe Conrad, the founder of the organization, and said, hey, congrats, Man Therapy's doing a great job. And he's an alumni of CSU. He said, oh, awesome. And they said, we've had 17 suicides on campus in the past two years. Can you help us? So Joe got his team together. They went in and said, yeah, absolutely. We'll do some focus groups. So they did a bunch of focus groups at CSU. And it was a little knife in Joe's heart. The students said, yeah, Man Therapy's funny if you're my dad, um, <laughs> and, right? <laughs> and by the way, we don't have mental health problems. So the focus group asked them, you know, what kind of problems do you experience? They talked about social anxiety, fear of adulting, transition problems, loneliness, social awkwardness. And, you know, it's all the same things. It's just different terminology. So they created this awesome platform called You that is based on basic human needs. So they divide them into succeed, thrive, and matter succeed success, like academic, occupational, retirement, financial, thrive is everything we think of as health, nutrition, sleep, fitness, anxiety, depression, cardiac, cancer, all of that. And then the matters, the existential piece. And I think that's, that piece has really come into the forefront for us over the past couple of years. So it's 
spirituality, it's meaning and purpose, it's positive social relations, it's sense of identity. What do you do when you're coming to retirement and you're not ready? What do you do when you get disabled and you're out? What do you do when you feel like this career was a bad choice for you? And we're seeing this a ton in healthcare and law enforcement right now. And now you're leaving with a moral injury. How do you deal with that? So this tool is totally free. It's browser-based. So if you open it, on a laptop looks and operates like a website. If you open it on your phone in a browser, looks and operates like an app. Users can create a private account, do self-assessments. And we are seeing a ton of self-assessments. We see anonymized data on the back end. Alcohol use, substance misuse, and sleep issues are some of the biggest ones we see. Man, but, sleep. Yeah. Sleep, sleep, sleep. That is, that's Ooh. my number one. It's been for a few years. That's my number one problem is sleep. And mm -hmm. We were actually talking the other day on shift how we're like hearing the tones at home, hearing the tones in the grocery store, or waking up and just can't, you know, you start thinking. I was talking to my engineer and I was like, yeah, when I wake up at like 4 or 5 a.m. now, I just might as well get up. Like I can't go back to bed. It's just I start thinking. And so sleep is a huge issue. I, I would say, I mean, for me, it's my number one. Like that's my number mm -hmm. one, like that's causing any, most of any problems I have from a physical standpoint or even a mental standpoint, I think the number one, re there's probably a few causes, but the number one contributing factor I think is sleep. Rhonda, I need something that puts me down for 12 hours a night, no matter what. You gotta quit, you gotta <laughs> quit sleep through tones. Yeah. Um, you gotta quit is what you gotta yeah, do. Yeah, you're probably right. That'd probably take a couple of years to get normal sleep back. Well, you know, Tom, when I came offline to become health and safety at Aurora, it was three years. There was a rip and run printer outside my health and safety office. Oh, it was three years before I started. I stopped startling to get up every time I heard the rip and run because that went with the tones in the station. It's um, to your point, we, the work that we do in 911 in particular, we're, our brains are trained to look for light and to hear sound to tell us that we have to go back to that vigilant state. We have to take action. And that is a long time to deprogram. And I think there's a lot of other aspects of the job that just interfere with our sleep. I haven't talked to a single responder who doesn't have problems with sleep. And there are a multitude of different ways. Some people have problems falling asleep because they can't get their mind to calm down. There are people who wake up, like you said, three, four, five consistently in the morning um, with their mind racing. And the best solution kind of depends on what the personal experience is. For people who are waking up in the middle of the night, one of the best recommendations is to keep a notepad by the bed and just start jotting down what's running through your head because your brain doesn't really differentiate writing something down versus actually resolving it. So if you go to bed thinking about, I got all these things I got to do tomorrow and you write down a to-do list, you're far more likely to sleep mm -hmm. through the night than if you just go to bed. And when you're, you get just enough rest that your awareness comes back up above that threshold, well, then your brain kicks back in with all the things you have to worry about. One of the other big things we see with responders is uh, muscle tension. We get this feedback loop going where our brain tells us that we're not safe. We're hypervigilant because we're waiting for the next tone. We're waiting for the next stimulus. And it sends signals to our body. It's a form of the fight or flight response. One of the signals is to increase muscle tension, sometimes slightly, sometimes significantly. So you can be ready to fight or flee when you need to, when you get that stimuli, that the tones. And that increases your muscle tension. When your muscle tension increases, it sends a signal back to your brain, something's wrong, muscles are tight, let's start looking for the danger. And so it turns into this feedback loop for people who are having that experience, stretching before bed can do a tremendous amount to help them sleep through the night. And it's one of the reasons we see in post-traumatic stress, so many people who are suffering from it have what's called body armoring, it's muscle armoring. So they, they've got that kind of chronic hunched tense position. They're prone to a lot of muscle injuries because of that increase in muscle tension. And it all traces back to fight or flight. I had an interesting experience recently. We went to the shore with my wife and my two kids. And it took me a full three days to be happy, to like enjoy myself at all. And I think that had, a, it felt like that hypervigilant state. Was what, do you, like, what do you mean be happy? Like you can't relax? You, yeah, you like, want to get back home? Or for the first couple of days? No, it's not even I want to get back home. It's just like I can't settle. I can't like, I guess I can't relax for a better. What does relaxing look like for you? Like you're agitated. Yeah, like I'm agitated. Like I, I was kind of like in kind of a dick for like the first couple of days, <laughs> honestly. 
and I would, you know, I'd do my normal morning routine. I'd get up, do my run and come back and have a little bit of quiet time. And normally that sets me up for a great day, but for whatever reason, I just couldn't, and maybe I'm just a piece of shit. That also could be, (laughs) but I, it was like a real problem. Are you familiar with the stress injury model from the military? No, can you, you, you mentioned that you've actually mentioned a lot of things, a lot of acronyms that I've, that I do want to go back to, but, uh, if we could talk about that, that'd be great. So all the work we're doing at all clear foundation. And I talked about, we're dealing with cardiac and metabolic, mental and emotional, relational, social, spiritual health. The model that we're using is the stress model. And it is so relevant to the military and the responder experience and to the healthcare experience, all of these professions that ingrain hypervigilance in you. And the culture teaches us that hypervigilance is healthy and this is what you need to do to be good, to be successful. The problem is we're training our nervous system every single day. And what you're talking about, it's a transition in state in the the activation of the, the nervous system. So when we get stressed, our bodies and our brains do a couple of different things. So when we experience an outside stimuli and we start telling ourselves this is a threat or a danger or it's our pattern to react like it's a threat or a danger or we fall into that hypervigilance pattern from when we're on the job we're taught to get that to be good on the job but we're never taught to turn it off right away like a switch when you go on vacation or when you come off shift or when you go home so now our nervous systems are activated it does a couple things it can increase our muscle tension um it changes the way we metabolize sugar it also conserves energy. So the prefrontal cortex, the section of our brain that makes us emotionally intelligent, that makes us empathic, that has logic and reason, that sees consequences for our actions, that's really fuel intensive. That burns a lot of fuel. So when we're stressed and our nervous system's activated, our body tends to deactivate the prefrontal cortex. So it pulls us down to a more reactive state of mind. So we're more emotional. And lots of times the emotion's negative. It's that irritability, it's being a dick, it's just being frustrated, not knowing why, but lashing out at everyone around you. And it's because we don't have the capacity for more right now because our nervous system is just in overdrive. Yet over the course of a couple of days, when your body starts to experience, oh, I'm sleeping better. I'm having fun. I can relax. I, I don't have to wait for the call. I don't go to, I don't have to go on shift in the morning. Then our nervous system starts to come back into balance. So the parasympathetic starts balancing out our sympathetic, lets us go back up to that higher functioning brain. And I loved what you said about before I could feel happy to feel those positive emotions, to have that relaxation, not only in your body, but in your brain it takes your nervous system being in balance. So what you were describing is super common among our ranks. And it's because the sympathetic nervous system is dominant. It doesn't allow you to have the happiness, the empathy, the compassion, the patience, the ability to see if I say what's on my mind, there's going to be a fallout from the person I'm talking to. That goes away when we're in a chronically stressed state. Once you go on vacation, after a couple of days, usually people start to balance back out. The, unfortunately, the other thing that tends to happen after a couple of days of vacation is that we get sick because chronic stress tends to depress the immune reaction. As you start to recover and start to relax, your nervous system starts to kick back in. It kind of looks around like, where did all this crap come from? <laughs> I got to fix all this. And so it's really interesting. But I think the stress model is phenomenal for explaining so much of our experience as responders. Thank I can't wait to talk to my wife about about that and say, Hey, there's a, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for going on vacation with me. Sorry for treating you like a dick for, yeah, for three days. days. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that you talk about talking to your wife about it. So when we talk about social and relational health, we recognized a long time ago that as responders, we tend to come home. We don't flip that switch to turn off the occupational skill sets. We're tired and wired. So we're even more irritable and it create it can create a lot of problems in our family relationships when we don't understand, we feel bad about ourselves, which makes things worse. Um, when they don't understand, they feel bad about us too. And that doesn't help anything. Um, it can lead to the fracturing of a lot of relationships and look like we're developing character issues. We just don't care anymore. We're becoming jaded and not so nice to be around. But we partnered with this group called the Center for Relationship Education and created this series called Responding to Your Relationships, which is all evidence-based relationship and communication skills flavored with our experience. So we talk about 
shifting worldview where we go out and, you know, nobody calls us because they're having a great day and they want to celebrate. They call because things have gone bad. It's the worst day in their lives. So we see this spectrum of human interaction and occurrence, but in our minds, we think this is what people are like. So we're like, people suck. No, you're not going to a slumber party. Do you know what happens to those things? You sure as heck ain't going to the park by yourself. You see that guy? He doesn't have a kid here. Who's he? What's he doing here? I mean, so we have this shifting worldview and it makes us more protective of those we love, but to the, those we love, it feels like controlling. And I can't tell you how many guys who work in training, Tom, that their significant others will tell me, he comes home and acts like he's the training officer. And I ain't a boot. I am not a recruit. I got, I got told that one time by Sarah. Oh, like, really? I don't, I, it was one time I was a training. You made her do burpees? Yeah. Yeah. So I, came, <laughs> I, I don't know, can't even repeat the I remember the actual like circumstances, but I do remember saying, I'm not a recruit, just so you know. I just kind of smiled and like, all right. (laughs) What can I say to that? You know? Well, there's so many other ways. Like you come home from a 24 or 48 and you are just exhausted, but your nervous system's still in overdrive. So you get that tired and wired that just I, I can't even. And usually family are so excited to see you when you come home. You get peppered with questions. What do you want for dinner? What do you want to do Saturday? Do you want to go do this? And, and our answer, because we're fatigued, is I don't care. Um, and we really don't because decision-making fatigue. We all know you can only make so many decisions. Coming off a shift is not the time to start making new ones. But to the family, it sounds like I don't care about you. And that can just lead to so many issues. So anyway, long story short, we created 40 modules that talk about the responder experience, explain it. We've had so many significant others go through some version of the class, whether it's a retreat or a day long session and just have these light bulbs go on. Like, gosh, I thought she was just becoming a jerk or I thought he didn't love us anymore. I didn't understand this is what's going on. Um, so we took the 10 most popular modules and took the core 10 minutes out of them and put them on uh, our website. They're called Respond Online. And um, so many responders have told us they watched them with their significant other. And it's been great because it doesn't sound self-defensive when the significant other hears it from experts. Like, oh, this makes so much more sense. And then we work with them in Colorado here locally. Every other month, there is a weekend relationship retreat that's totally scholarship for 30 responders and 30 military couples. And we've just had people come out of that saying this saved with the relationship, this, we were separated, now we're back together. So we really do see that the impact on the family is huge, but it doesn't have to be there. It's, it's a lack of understanding. So these modules, they can find these modules on allclearfoundation.org? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. On the allclearfoundation.org site, there's a top tab that says solutions. If you hover over it, it'll drop down with all of the tools and solutions we have, and you can just click on it. Point of pride for us at the foundation is we never charge a responder or an agency for anything we do. We gather corporate and philanthropic donations to pay for everything. We feel like the the service, whether it's paid by the responder or by the family member, is enough payment. Let's let's make sure they're not paying financially for this. Real quick, touch on the relationship. What is the scholarships? The uh, the weekend retreats or whatever that I've seen those come out. Uh, I actually know a few people that have done that and you're right. They, their feedback is, this was a great weekend. Uh, they even do childcare, I think, right? Limited childcare. Yeah. They take, try to take all the excuses, not away. necessarily excuses, but the, the <laughs> obstacles. Yeah. They try to take all the obstacles out of it so you can make it happen for you and your significant other. And so just, touch on that a little bit more. And if there's a way, like if, like the way it's always come out, uh, for me is that the department has sent out an email and especially when you were around Rhonda, you would send that out, you know? And, but if someone's department is not doing that for them, where can they go to sign up for this or, you know, fill out a, an application? Ah, so a couple places, um, allclearfoundation.org under the partnerships menu center for relationship education. It's there following us on social media, we post those events every uh, a month or so before they happen to give people time to register and plan. Um, Responder Strong's Facebook page, we post that stuff on. And then the website directly for the Center for Relationship Education is myrelationshipcenter.org. And if you click on events, just say you want responder specific, they'll show up there. When it comes to, I mean, these problems of lack of sleep, being hypervigilant, running these calls, seeing these things. 
they've been going on for so long, and yet now it seems like there's this huge mental health crisis. Are we just getting softer as um, as responders, or I mean, I guess like why is this a thing now? I don't think we're getting softer. I think we're getting smarter and stronger. Interesting. Um, yeah. So you know, you look in the past. We know that you know we've known for a long time that suicide is one of our leading occupational killer. In fact, by some accounts, suicide outpaces all the other line of duty death causes by three to four times, especially in law enforcement and fire. I think in the past, we didn't talk about it. There was a tremendous amount of suffering. And you look at, ah, Tom, I remember when I came on, um, the older guys, you know, the ones who should have already retired or were getting close to it, you know, just how negative and how bitter and how many times I'd hear them say things like, my family would just be so much better off if I died on the job. Um, and these things that didn't make sense. I think we, our culture has been really good at glamorizing stress injury as badges of honor. So yeah, you're on your third divorce. You've got a drinking problem. Somebody hooks you up to an IV when you come on shift. You got some financial issues. I think these problems were always there. We just didn't talk about them. And so many responders out of shame and feeling stigmatized took their issues to their graves. Now, I think we've made this transition where over the past couple of years, things have finally gotten so crazy. Responders are recognizing we're being called up to do tons of overtime. We're not getting pay raises. We're passing up on vacation. We're there for everybody. We're providing the social work, the emergency response, the, you know, all these things. And we're hitting a breaking point. And I think as a group, we're no longer willing to sacrifice ourselves for a 30 year career and to come out with the negative outcomes that we've seen in the past. I think that we're in the, the transition of people being more proactive, that I want to have a good life overall. And to Tom's point, I'm recognizing I sleep like crap. And because I sleep like crap, my metabolism's bad. My relationships are bad. I don't feel good. It takes me three days on vacation before I can start to feel positive emotions again. And I don't want to live this way. So how can I prevent this? How can I be proactive? And in that point, it's strength. It's smarter. And I also think, and I've always believed this, that if you want to encourage responders to do anything, tell them the military or professional athletes do it. And <laughs> right. But I see a lot of transition in programs like ours and others. We're not talking about mental illness because this isn't mental illness. This is a normal reaction. And this is about performance, not just how you perform on the job, but how you perform in life. And I, the stress model, I think, is one of the most beautiful ways for us to destigmatize all of this. It's stress that underlies the depression, the anxiety, the substance misuse, the suicidality that we see in a lot of responders. Um, it's stress that underlies the spare tire around the abdomen. It's stress behind the diabetes. It's stress behind the cardiac disease. It's usually stress reactions behind the family and relationship issues. Like, no, we can control this. If all this stress and trauma accumulates a drop at a time over our career, taking care of ourselves, even with seemingly small habits, because they have to be habits, not just one-offs, that's how we counter this. And this is how we have a good life. So what can departments do? Because it seems like a lot of the issues are the sleep stuff. And at least for where we're at, and I'm sure everywhere else is they just keep adding more things that fall under the umbrella of what we'll respond to, even though it doesn't seem like we're actually helping it. Like it doesn't, you know, when you talked about those, those three different buckets that we have to fill that one that was kind of existential and it was having a sense of purpose that seems to be going away for a lot of people is there an answer that the departments can start to to do to actually help because it seems to me like most departments just do this lip service hey we'll mm -hmm. do a peer support team that will barely fund and uh we'll throw some emails out every now and again saying we care about your mental health but then they you know, oh, you you didn't sleep at all. Oh, you're mandatory today, and you gotta drive. Oh, well, I also you know think what I'm I also think there is this disconnect between, like like you said, hey, let's put this peer support team in place. Let's let's talk about the health and safety of our members. Let's give them resources. But then a lot of these major causes, like being up at night, so lack of sleep, the job demands. Rhonda, you talked a little bit about you know all these different types of things we have to do now, you know, from just almost being a social worker to uh, now, you know, from a firefighter standpoint, now we're doing some of the police jobs, you know, because yeah. they're, they, you know, they have had to step back with all the scrutiny lately. But the disconnect, I think, is, well, we're going to put these programs in place, but then we're also just going to pile on more and more and more. And maybe the things that we had time for 
10, 20 years ago, we don't have time for anymore. And you need to give some downtime back to these guys so they can try to relax a little bit. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I feel personally, I think one of them might be, we got to say no to some things that we have said yes to in the past few decades, just simply because we, we can't do it. We don't have the bandwidth. Well, and I think Tom, you just nailed it, that the pressure that I think is ultimately or that I'm seeing nationally start to change organizations is the leaders are recognizing recruitment and retention is a huge problem. We don't have 2000 people applying for a firefighter position anymore. You know, a lot of agencies are, are happy if they get 20 people applying for four positions. Do you see that across the nation now? I mean, because I remember when I was testing, you know, this was 15 or so years ago. Um, I was in Arizona at the time and, you know, you're, talking 1,500 to 2,000 people for each city department would be lined up. And then I moved back to Denver, and and Denver Fire was the same way. Our department hasn't always been that way, you know, to where you have thousands of people lining up. But I know that, you know, you, you hear from a lot of bigger agencies across the nation. They were still that way, but that was 15 years ago. I mean, what are you seeing across, like, these you know, sought after metro departments that a lot of people want to go to, you're not seeing the lines of applicants anymore? No, we're not, especially not in law enforcement. But oh, if yeah. we're seeing it in EMS. Uh, there's a huge attrition rate. You know, I mentioned I work with Global Medical Response. They just put out a um, a referral. What is it? I, what do you call it? A referral fee or award. If you can convince a pilot to come work on the air medical side, it's a $10,000 referral bonus. That's the term. Um, we are just seeing huge demands. And it's it's that catch-22, the chicken and the egg, that we're not getting as many people applying. We're getting a lot of people who are like, it's not worth it anymore. I don't want to do this. I want to go do something else. And now the people who are staying are getting mandatory, like Craig's point, and that um, it's just increasing the burden on those that are staying. So we're having to do so much more with so much less and the less is personnel. And I think that's what I'm really seeing being the decision, the leverage point with leaders is, do you wanna recruit and retain staff? Cause right now the incoming, you know, the 20 something generation isn't willing to sign up for everything that the rest of us glamorized and wanted to do. They don't want 30 year careers. It's a different mindset. We're hearing so many people. We, I, I even heard this, you know, in the last couple of years with Aurora, with the new recruits asking, well, what's in this for me? What about work-life balance? How is this going to make me better? And if we don't shift as organizations to address those desires, we're not going to recruit people. And the more, the harder we work the people we have, the less likely we are to retain them. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there, you're exactly right, right? So you've got people that don't necessarily want to stay in the profession, it's not worth it, but I think they're leaving the profession and you're not getting that positive word of mouth anymore of like, oh, this is a great job. This is, you know, you should sign up. You'd love it. Now it's getting, well, yeah, I did it for like three or four years and it just got old. Like I, I just, they, they don't take care of you, they, this and that, and the calls are running aren't the same. So you have this negative, I guess, spreading the word you know it's it's almost like bad it's like bad google reviews you know what, was, <laughs> what used what? to be 5.0 reviews are now like what now yelp review would you give our department uh, i'm not even gonna, i'm not even gonna go there we, we, we moved on from that is um, it is there anyone doing it right Rhonda? is there is there a like a department out there that is putting their money where their mouth is i think there are departments some departments that are closer than others to that i think there's a lot more work to be done across the board and when we're looking at inflation and municipalities in particular having to cut their budgets, it's not just our leadership in the organization, but it's the municipal leaders when they're looking at it. Okay, is this mental health support program, is this wellness support program for public safety really worth X number of dollars for us? So I see a lot of leaders who have good intentions seeing their budgets getting cut and the cities directing them that this just isn't a high return on investment, not to their mind, um, it is to ours. So I think that that's a looming battle. Well, it's already in process. I think that there is an explosion in organizations like ours who are really approaching this through a collaborative mindset. We understand the problem. Most of the people in All Clear Foundation are current or former responders, military or healthcare. And we really recognize the depth of the problem, the, the obstacles to, to resolution, whether it's financial or stigma or mindset. 
And we know that we can't solve it on our own. So we're very collaborative. We're open to strategic partnerships. We want to find groups who specialize like CRE. They know more about relationship and communication skills than we ever will, but we understand how it translates into the responder world. So together we can create something more effective offer it free and keep it sustainable. We've been working with a group called Sigma Tactical who created a inflammation-based physical originally for law enforcement where we're helping them expand it to other emergency responders in recognition, chronic elevation of stress hormones wreaks havoc on the body. That's where we're seeing um, high cortisol in particular, change sugar metabolism, high rates of diabetes, Chronic suppression of the inflammatory system contributes to the increased rates of cancer we see, especially in the fire service. Um, and that a lot of the diseases happen earlier and more frequently in the responder population than they do in the average population. But, you know, the, uh, here's a statistic from them. The average law enforcement officer who has a cardiac event has it before the age of 45. But most insurance plans won't start cardiac screening until you're 50 unless you score high on Framingham, which looks at family history and cholesterol. Well, half the cops who have cardiac events don't have high cholesterol because it's inflammation oriented. It's cholesterol by itself isn't the problem, it's the chronic inflammation that it's in. So they have designed a physical that looks early on at an officer's overall well-being and looks at inflammatory markers, looks at calcium scoring, looks at the things that are associated with inflammation-based disease processes. And they have had an incredible amount of success in identifying not only cardiac and metabolic disease early in officers, but doing such comprehensive blood panels. They've identified early stage leukemia and lymphoma in officers back when, you know, the private physician probably wouldn't have recognized it for a couple of years if the cop even went in for a physical because they're not likely to. And they're catching the cancers at such an early stage that intervention has really positive outcomes. So that's another group that we partnered with. We could never do that, but we want to service the conduit and, and kind of the cultural competence and informed group working with that agency to help expand their reach. It seems like there's a, a point though, that when you sign up for this job, you are signing up to take on some of these stressors, right? Like the, the cities shouldn't take away everything, you know, and I don't think, I, I think that's an unrealistic expectation of new employees is what's that work-life balance? Well, there's still that other side, which is the work. And so right. you need to, as an employee, you have to understand that you are giving up some of those. There is sacrifice. To yeah. The there's, job. and there yeah. should be, that's a part that's of any a, job. There are perks that we have that are unlike most other jobs. But what's interesting, and, and, I'm, and I'm curious to know, because you work with them, private EMS and private fire. I think when you work for a department, you do feel some sort of tribe. And mm -hmm. we see it a lot. They're bringing in people from all over the country to work for three months at a time in our city because they can't get full-time employees. I would imagine that those people who have to go back to a hotel room every night and they don't have that tribe to commiserate with, to deload, mm -hmm. what kind of issues are you seeing with travelers or contract workers? Great question. Um, especially in healthcare, EMS, wildland, um, the disaster response, essentially. We are seeing a tremendous amount of moral injury and a sense of administrative betrayal among nursing staff with regards to travelers coming in. So it's it's interesting, the traveler side versus the, the long-term personnel side. The long-term personnel feel like I've been devoted to this agency. I have foregone vacation. I have picked up tons of overtime, mandatory or voluntary. We haven't gotten raises. And now you bring these travelers in, you pay them two to three times what we make. And I, I just feel like I'm, I'm not being valued. I'm being disrespected. And then, but to your point, the travelers, most of them choose this life and they're making banks. So I think a lot of them feel like, yeah, this is good. I'm here. And this is, I think the key I'm here for six weeks. I'm here for three months. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Wow. Whereas the nurses like I'm here for 30 years. Did I choose well? Is this someplace that I can sustain myself? Is this someplace I can be happy for 30 years? Do they even want me here? Um, so I think travelers do have some social isolation, but I have heard from a lot of travelers and traveler recruiters 
that they tend to develop a tight little traveling community too. So tribe, the human connection, I think is absolutely essential. And flipping over to wildland firefighters, it's come out in the statistics over the past several years that their suicide rates are horrific. And part of what's coming back is most of them are seasonal workers. They don't get paid much. They don't have benefits when they're off season. They are separated from their family and their friends. They've got this tight tribe while they're there with their crew. And it's intense work, physically beat down. They disperse, don't have that social support, feel fractured from the community they go back to, or they're in such financial distress that they're running to the next job. What am I going to do for the winter season? I'm going to go ski patrol. Yeah, there's another industry that has a high rate of suicide. You want to make EMS tougher, do it on skis. Um, Ski patrol has a high (laughs) level of suicide? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can load you up with some info. It's crazy. What do you think about it? Most ski patrollers are emergency responders in their day jobs. So this is something we've done a lot as responders is, yeah, when we look for uh, additional money, we go and we pick up second jobs. And usually the second jobs are still in the response field. So we're increasing our exposure to the stress. We're decreasing our recovery time. And yeah, it's it's self-defeating ultimately. But then the other group that I really see that you made me think about is the disaster workers with the COVID responders, the hurricane responders, tornadoes, all the craziness that we're seeing with the weather and the climate. We are hearing from a lot of people that they'll go out and they'll deploy for three, four, five months at a time. And within the context of GMR, we've put out a lot of crisis resources and the use is through the roof. We have a 24-7 manned by a culturally competent clinician crisis line. And the numbers that of outreach, and almost all of them happen in the middle of the night, is heartwarming and obscene at the same time that that many people are suffering. But so many people tell us the reason they deploy for that long is for one of two reasons, either huge financial stress. So they're trying to solve one stressor with an even larger stressor, taking themselves away from fam- family, friends, support system, familiarity. The other is my relationship at home is crap, and I'm here to get away from that. And um, and it's just, there is this whole crazy psychology around all of this. There seems to be a lot of, I mean, it's just, you know, the things that we listen to, but evidence coming out of use of off-label drugs, helping Mm -hmm. with PTSD and people coping. Do you see, and we can't have access to any of it because we are, you know, federal for lack of a better government workers. You're, you look like excited to talk about this. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I want to know about um, weed in the fire service. Is it going to happen? Not even marijuana. I'm saying way, way above Yeah, but that's, that. that's something that's... Psilocybin, ketamine. Yeah, but I think um, when people hear that, they think, oh, great, now I can do shrooms. It's No, it is th- through with therapy, therapy along with that. You just can't go get baked and you're like, oh, I'm better now. <laughs> that solved everything. Yeah, it solved everything. <laughs> Yeah. So, and I love that you bring this up. And the reason I'm so excited is one of the things we've been doing is growing our relationship with the research community, because we want all of our content, all of our interventions to be evidence-based. We also want it to be cutting edge. And this is an area we're really exploring. One of the groups we're working with right now is out of DU, and it's a survey of emergency responders specifically around their attitudes towards psilocybin-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress. In the military and in the general population, there is overwhelming positive research, evidence of efficacy for in therapeutic sessions, not just like in your car or in your basement, um, but uh, using psilocybin, MDMA, or ketamine to help treat resistant post-traumatic stress. It's been shown to be wildly effective. Each of the ones has a different reason for use, like MDA does, MDMA does something different than psilocybin, does something different than ketamine, but the, the results are incredible. Not only that they get results, but that they get them quickly. So we're talking about one to two, maybe three sessions, rather than just take this med for six months, you know, see a therapist once a week. Um, and it's really helping people make the breakthroughs. And part of the reason is that they circumvent some of the neural wiring and some of the neural wiring has happened because of the chronic elevation of our stress response and the activation of our our nervous system. So back to that study with DU, they wanted to know how come, even though there's all this evidence that these therapies are really good, responders are still resistant. We talked to them, we said, there's, there's a couple good reasons. One, don't want to lose their jobs. Most response agencies are federally regulated and none of these things are, are legal federally. Two, there's some state concerns. Most of them aren't legal in the state. And even if they do, like in November, mushrooms are decriminalized. If they become legalized, that's still not the therapeutic usage of them. And then three is responders don't understand clinical trials or 
seeking this care under the medical umbrella, under the care of a licensed clinician. Using these medications under the care of a licensed clinician for therapeutic sessions does not disqualify most responders from their job. The FBI even acknowledges they have multiple agents who have used ketamine or MDMA in the course of post-traumatic stress treatment, and they, they know and they don't care. They got better. This guy is way better where he is now. The ketamine was used for one day, three days, whatever it was. It's not an abuse. So it's it's coming back to the attitudes, especially with law enforcement and with fire and EMS personnel, we think, oh my God, this is you know category one or this is category two. This is no, 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 no. It's going to make me an addict. It's going to make me like them, not us. And that's the mindset we need to shift because these modalities are just proving to be tremendously beneficial. Yeah. And, and the worst thing that I think we do very well is we just drink because we think that oh. that is obviously the way that we were taught by, not taught, but you know, for lack of a better term, we were shown by our senior members, like, listen, just, you'll be fine. Go have a cocktail, relax. And it's like, well, and correct me if I'm wrong. The the use of, of these psychedelics is that through our experiences, our brain neuron, we, the mapping of our brain changes in our job. And then these drugs under the assistance of a clinician, basically like remap the brain to the way it's supposed to be working. Yeah. So remember when you said you couldn't get happy for three days on vacation? Yes. And part of the explanation around that is that when your sympathetic nervous system is activated, your brain capacity changes. You're the, it's not necessarily your wiring, but what's being activated at the moment in the areas that are being activated are not comfortable or are not capable of having those positive joy, happiness, connection, empathy. It's the same thing that it's believed with MDNA and psilocybin and and ketamine that after chronic stressed states, the brain, the neural pathways, and that's where the neural pathways change, aren't capable of the awareness and the recognition and the change that you need to make to heal. And what these do is take the blocking areas of the brain offline and allow greater access to the areas for healing. And that's why in conjunction with the talk therapy, the the therapist who knows what this med or this substance is doing for your brain can walk you through it and achieve that healing. And that's why you can get that, you're far more likely to get that in a therapeutic session than if you're just sitting in your basement by yourself, because then your brain's just going to go wherever. Um, You're highly suggestive in that state. And if you're thinking negative thoughts, you can go down just as easy as you can go back up. Yeah, right? But it's exciting (laughs) times. Um, Google um, Paul Conti, C-O-N-T-I. He's been doing a ton of podcasts lately. Um, Tim Ferriss has got an awesome one with him I listened to this weekend. He talks about traumatic reactions in a way I haven't heard anybody else talk about it, but he also juxtaposes it with the experience of responders in military and talking about why other people's trauma can hit us hard sometimes, how we get primed for that, and why these modalities are proving so effective in achieving long-term care. So Conti, I love everything he's doing. He's done some stuff recently. Peter Atia, he's making kind of all the the podcast circuits. Oh, yeah. I like him him a lot. But So this Conti guy, psychiatrist, consultant, Mm -hmm. author, he wrote The Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. All right. If anyone knows this Conti gentleman, maybe we'll get him on the show. Right, yeah. Yeah, We're we're moving on up. Totally, that's right. You know, Rhonda, this happened last time, is... We go through an episode, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface again. There's just so much more. So we're going to have to do this again. Uh, I would love to. I love the take you guys have on everything. You're making a big impact. I'd love to come back and chat. Yeah. So, again, I know what you're doing is a lot of work. You're a workaholic, so you're going to get it done. Uh, Hey, I'm recovering. You're super invested. A recovering workaholic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. No, you're super invested. So if anybody's right for what you're doing, it's you. So... Thanks for all that you've done for one, us, our department, uh, and then, you know, for the Colorado first responder community, community, and then now you're going nationally. So really cool to see how it's grown and, and, uh, you're, you're making a big impact. So. Well, thanks. It's a team effort. Like I said, it's strategic partnerships and I am really excited. We brought on a director of programs and operations this morning and he comes to us from wounded warrior. So we are really excited to learn from his experience and um, to model ourselves 
in some aspects with the way that they grew, but really catering all of our supports to the uniqueness of the emergency responder and, and frontline healthcare all experience. Right. Yeah. And so for anybody listening, we'll try to recapture all these like links and little things we talked about, put it in the show notes so they can, they can at least hit the websites and click on the resources that we mentioned today so they can use them because they're out there. And like you said, almost all of them, if not all of them are free. All of them are free. Um, And uh, thanks for allowing me to come on and and chat with you guys. Really enjoy your energy and your perspective and look forward to reconnecting again soon. Of course. So we got some patrons to welcome to our community. Uh, A few have joined up in the last month and a half or so. Adrian Yanes. Garrett Visser, Sean Egan, Evan Mathias, Soren Petrangelo. Ooh, I think I got that right. That was I think nice. I got right. Cooper Perkins, Christopher Matt Miller. Christopher, you have three first names <laughs> as a whole name. All right. Chris Novello, David Owens, Zach King, Tyler Gearing, Brian Mead. Charlie Craig. Ooh, nice. Stand by. We still got a few more. No, that is nice, but that was nice. just I gotta take a breath because got a lot of names here. Aaron Barney, Tim Swanson, and Aaron. That's all I got. I don't have a last name. But That's cool. It? Yeah, Aaron. Did we say Graham Brown? I don't know, did we? I don't think so. Alright. Graham? Welcome. Graham Welcome. signed up. So Graham hit me up on the Instagram machine. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm thinking about thinking about signing up. And he, the post was basically he got on the Echo Bike on air. I saw that. And that worked through good. a bottle. So I said, challenge accepted. You sign up for the Patreon, I will get in gear and breathe down an entire bottle on the Echo Bike. And it was uh, miserable. Yeah, that's not a good workout. It's like, worth that's it. not fun, but it's worth it. So thank you for the push, Graham. If you like this show, you like what we're doing, you like the video, you like... The way that this thing sounds, that is all because of our patrons. So when you join the Patreon, whether whatever, regardless of what tier you have, right? We have some that are three dollars, five dollars, and then obviously more expensive than that with, with better benefits, but it's providing us an opportunity to give you a better product. So thank you so much for signing up. And if you're curious about it, head on over to the-standard.us. <laughs>